Take your Bibles and locate the book of Mark, chapter 6. And while you're turning that, I have some great news for you. Jesus cares for you. And you say, well, Todd, that's what we assumed here in church. Actually, that's right. You should hear that in church. But I say that to you because there are people who wonder, does Jesus even care? Life hits them hard. Situations happen. Things go awry from their perspective. And so our minds begin to wonder, does Jesus even care for me? Back in the early 1900s, a, a man wrote a song, in fact, called, Does Jesus Care? I remember singing that as a kid growing up. It's a hymn, and it's very old, uh, and I don't know if many of you would even know it. There's probably a handful here who would. And as you hear the tune behind me for a few moments, a few seconds, you'll probably want to sing along. Here's some of the lyrics. The author asks this question, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? In other words, you can't express the pain you're in. The burdens press, the cares distress, and the way grows weary and long. Some of you are nodding, you're grinning, you remember the song? He says in the refrain, oh yes, he cares, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights are dreary, I know my Savior cares. So I don't know what you came in with this morning, but I want to first of all share this glorious news with you. Jesus cares for you. Now I'm not telling you that because a hymn writer wrote those words. I want to share that with you because the word of God illustrates and declares it for us. So you open your Bibles to Mark 6, you're there, aren't you? Let us see this morning in three narratives the comprehensive compassion and care of Jesus. We'll be seeing these three narratives. There's a lot of scripture. We could take our time to look at each one individually, but I think the author's intent is to show something by the, by the thread of these narratives. What's going on in each of these that seems to be kind of woven through all of them? It's going to be this, that in every situation of life, Jesus is compassionate and cares for people. I'll take a few questions as well at some point. So if you have some, feel free to text them in. You can use our app for that. I just download our app. There's a question link. You'll press it. You'll send your question in, and we'll take a few of those. And then I'll have one for you as well today that I think we have to wrestle with as we think about the care and compassion of Christ. And all that will hopefully help us see the real take-home encouragement today, Okay. So let's dive into these three narratives beginning in Mark 6, verse 31, that help us see the, the beautiful, comprehensive compassion of Jesus, all right? First of all, we're going to see this in verses 31 to about 44. We're going to see that Jesus is compassionate when we are spiritually fatigued. Notice the text with me, would you? Mark 6, 31. After they, of course, had come back from being sent on mission Jesus says to them in verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So contrast the word yourselves there, right? Christ said, come away by yourselves to the idea that many were coming and going. So he's saying, you've been surrounded by crowds for a while, so much so that you've had very little time to even eat. So come away by yourselves. Here, here's a, a, a free vacation for a bit, right? Can we just put that in our vernacular? A getaway. You need a break. I love that Christ knows the rhythms of life here, don't you? 
He understands that we live in weak, limited, frail bodies. We can't just go like the Energizer bunny forever and ever and on and on and going and going, right? So he says to the disciples, here, come away by yourselves, away from the crowds, the needs, the demands of what you were doing on this mission on which you were sent, and just rest. Now, on the heels of that, we're going to find something very humorous and ironic. It never actually happens, okay? I can't explain to you why. I know that Christ is aware of it. I'm sensing perhaps that within this narrative, he's teaching them something bigger than the fact that they need rest. And we'll try to see what that is. But I think it's interesting. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. But at least in the record of this scripture, that never happens. Let me show you. They went away, verse 32 says, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. There's the same word again as in verse 31. So they're finding this secluded kind of vacation spot, right? But many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot. They must have been slow rowers. I don't know. They ran there on foot from all the towns and they got there ahead of them. So the racers on foot beat the rowers on the sea. And when he went ashore, speaking of Christ, he saw a great crowd. But that's the very thing. He had said to them, hey, come away by yourselves. But up, oh, I guess that didn't happen, did it? Here we are now in the midst of the crowd again. The Bible says that when Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. And notice something here. This is the explicit reference to Christ's compassion to the crowds. But you may overlook something here. The implicit reference to compassion, to the compassion of Christ for his disciples. That's in verse 31. What did he say to his disciples? In the midst of all this ministry, time on mission, they were sent and then they found themselves spent. What did he say to them? Come away by yourselves. Rest. You need a break. So, so we find in the character of Christ, both to the crowds and the disciples, this compassionate nature, this beautiful, caring character trait. He cares for people. Well, as he's teaching them many things, because they're like sheep without a shepherd, the hour grows late, and verse 35 says, the disciples then said to him, this is a desolate place. Now, that's not a criticism. That's an affirmation that I think we've arrived at the getaway spot. Uh, hint, hint. We're here, and these crowds are here. Can you make them go away? That's what's happening here. Remember, desolate's used three times, so track the usage of that word. He promises uh, uh, kind of a secluded place. They think they get to it, but the crowds beat them there, so they have to deal with that. And finally, at the end of the day, they're like, hey, can you make good on that? Uh, this is the desolate place, and we're kind of cashing the chips for the, for the getaway. They're hungry, so the disciples request Christ to, look at verse 36, send them away. Kind of the opposite of Christ's compassion, wouldn't you say? He's like, okay, I have great compassion. I'll teach you many things, but hey, you guys are in charge. Send them away. In fact, I would say to you this, and I've taught this for years, that the reason the disciples said send them away to the countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat was because they were hungry. I don't think that's actually textually true. I think the disciples were saying, hey, we want to cash in on the getaway. Send the people away. Let us go by ourselves. That's what the text indicates, right? We want to be by ourselves. That's what you said we would do. Okay, we've had a whole day with them. Can you send them away? And Christ responds by this in verse 37. 
No, you give them something to eat. Don't send them away to the local Chick-fil-A. You give them something to eat. Well, that perplexes them, and so they say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So he says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Well, they go and find out they have five loaves and two fish. And so Christ commands them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Verse 40 says they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. That'd be a large crowd to look at when you got one sack lunch, wouldn't it? Can you imagine being the disciples at this point? You've come off of a number of days of being on mission, reporting back to the Lord what what was going on. He says to you, come away and rest. Well, that gets interrupted now because of these crowds who follow you, and you're kind of perturbed and frustrated. And then he, he says to you, feed them, and you're like, okay. And then you've got one lunch and hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, it's just kind of escalating. Can you picture this? Well, they take the five loaves, the two fish, Christ does. He looks up to heaven, blesses it. He breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples to set before the people. And the sense of the text is this. He keeps on breaking the loaves. They don't run out. They just keep breaking the loaves, keep giving them out. Imagine if you're a disciple coming back, I've got another group of 50, uh, any more lunch left? Thank you. (laughs) And you continually are sharing this unending lunch with these people that actually were frustrating you earlier. It says that they divided the two fish among them all as well. They all ate and were satisfied. Verse 44 says this was about 5,000 men. What a miracle. Verse 43 tells us that they actually took up 12 baskets full of leftovers. That's the meaning of broken pieces and of the fish. In other words, what was left was one basket per disciple. Then you would think that they would say, wow, he promised to get away. We were interrupted. The crowds didn't allow that to happen yet. But look what we got. We've got plenty of nourishment. At least we can eat and be kind of replenished. But I don't think they caught it. At least Mark doesn't give us indication they made any sense of this. What I think is, is intriguing about this story in this first narrative is that in the middle of all of their frustration of their fatigue, in the middle of their perturbedness, is that a word, with the people, you don't find Christ scolding them. He's not the overbearing boss. He's not the guy with the the to-do list that won't quit. He has this incredible, compassionate nature. And though it does seem like the, the, the rest, the getaway is slow in coming, and for reasons, I think this is the reason, I think he was showing them that even in your tiredness, you can depend on me to meet needs. I think he's showing them where their dependence is, not in their strength or their ability to get a rest and then come back, you know, kind of ready for the show, so to speak, that even when you're tired and depleted, I can get the work done through you. I think that's what he's showing. So even when this getaway, this day of rest, so to speak, is kind of uh, late in coming, he's compassionate to them. He's caring towards them. I just love that about Jesus, don't you? I mean, have you ever felt spiritually fatigued? Like you just finished being, quote unquote, on mission for God. You're kind of looking forward to a little break and the phone rings. They need another volunteer. Your kid's got an issue. Your spouse has a situation. You're in an argument with with her or with him or a financial crisis. In other words, it just seems like uh, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, no, 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 right. It's kind of like that feeling, right? (laughs) 
And you just sometimes you're just spiritually worn out. Can I admit to you? I felt that way. In fact, I probably would say I felt that way recently. Just looking at the needs, the situations, the dilemmas in our body that, that, that I can really do nothing about. And the truth is, no one really can. They're going to take a, an interaction by God Almighty and feeling helpless. I, I, sometimes that's, that causes me, like, I just feel like, man, God, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired. I don't know what to do with any of this. You know? You ever felt that way? I'm sure you have. Can I say to you this morning, this is going to be very simple, but I want you to hear this. In that very moment, Jesus cares for you. He's not checking his list. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not sighing or groaning. He cares for you. With all that you know and feel and think about, the what ifs, the wish, the regrets, all of that, put it in the big pot. God knows that. He sees you, and guess what? He cares for you. Just like he cared for the disciples and just like he cared for the people. He has compassion for you when you are spiritually fatigued. I was asking our staff about this issue of spiritual fatigue this past week. Not all of them, just a few of them that were in the office that day. And we were talking about this concept. I think the most, those of us that talked about it, there was one general consensus. That an over, what's the best word to use here? Uh, an overly busy schedule highly contributes to spiritual fatigue. And I'm seeing nods already, and you're probably like, yeah, I get that. Have you ever felt that way? And so sometimes in our effort to try to, I guess, to meet needs, we, we complicate, we, we, we don't leave enough margin to do exactly what he says, to kind of get away and rest. We find that our spiritual fatigue really occurs when we are over-calendarized, you know? It's hard to do in this culture, isn't it, to to maintain margin. It's hard to say no to things. Wouldn't you agree? Those are all things we're else with. I'm not hearing this message to address all that. That's, that's another whole series, I'm sure. I just want you to know, if you're finding yourself right now, like, man, I've made that, that blunder. I've overcommitted. I'm feeling worn out. I'm feeling spiritually fatigued. I'm, I'm depleted of, of what, I, what I feel like I should be responding with compassion and help. I just kind of want to back away and bark at people. <laughs> In that moment, I want you to hear this. Jesus has compassion for you. Right? It's not excusing anything. He's not saying that everything's uh, should stay the same. But in that moment, Jesus is compassionate to those who are spiritually fatigued. Praise his name. I'm thankful for that personally. As the narrative continues... We see that Jesus has compassion when we are naturally afraid. Notice the use of words here. They're going to be important as we kind of wrap this up in a few minutes. Let's keep reading, can we? So they are kind of um, working on the leftovers. And immediately, verse 45 says, Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. In other words, there probably wasn't still this time to get away and rest. Are you catching this? 
it's this missing element still. Like, they're no sooner kind of finishing up leftover. She says, hey, guys, get in the boat. Go to the other side. He dismisses the crowd, and he takes a leave of them, and he goes to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea. The boat with the disciples was on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Verse 48 says, he saw that they were making headway painfully. In other words, it wasn't an easy trip across the, ocean, uh, the sea, right? Wind had come up, and so they were rowing fiercely. They weren't making a lot of progress. It was slow going, so slow that at least by 3 in the morning, they were still rowing. You catch that in verse 48, 49? About the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 in the morning. If they went out, let's say, at 9 at night, which was the evening time, they've been rowing four, five, six hours and not making a lot of progress. So Christ comes to them walking on the sea. And then verse 48 ends with an interesting phrase. He is meaning to pass by them, which I take to mean this. His intent all along was to send them in the boat and to face this temptation, this trial, this difficulty. But he knew they would make it, even though they didn't. So he's just going to pass on by him on the sea and meet them on the other side. That's what's going on here. But I love the way the compassion of Jesus here surfaces. And watch in this text. You're going to see his deity and humanity both just highlighted so wonderfully. Watch this. He's walking on the sea. That's a divinity action. Are you with me? Okay. He knows they're going to make it to the, to the other side. That's divinity. And yet when they see him walking on the sea, they thought it was a what? A ghost. And they cry out, for they all saw him and were terrified. And by the way, you would have done the very same thing. If you've been rowing for six hours at least, it's middle of the night, it's dark, and you see a man walking on the water, you're probably naturally afraid, and you're going to cry out. You're going to gasp. No matter how much you bench press, how many marathons you run, it's not going to be something you're going to take with a grain. You're like, ah, it's just a guy on the water, he's walking, it's a storm, no big deal. Ah, what's that? You're going to cry out, okay? And so they cry out, and what does Jesus do? He immediately speaks to them, and he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, I'm going to see if I can explain this to you. This will be difficult. The sense I get from this text, and I've read it hundreds of times in the last two weeks, just to try to make sure I'm not misleading you. I think this is a beautiful um, combination of his deity and humanity because, humanity because we know he was intending to pass them and go to the other side. He knew full well they'd be there. And yet, for some reason... He hears their cry and he stops and he interacts with them and he actually rescues them. You see that? So did Jesus change his mind? As a human, maybe so. But as God, no. You follow me? Something about their cries brought out this compassion like, oh man, they're in a mess. He knew in his divinity they would make it. But in his humanity, he stopped to help them. Look at the text. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. So they went from being terrified to being astounded. Why? Because when this man got in the boat, it wasn't hard to row anymore. Aren't you glad Jesus cared for his disciples? I mean, he could have continued with his, I'll use the phrase, original plan. Guys, I know you're struggling 
but I'm God. I know what's going to happen. I'll meet you on the other side, right? But I think there's something in the text that hints at this response of the the man Jesus to his friends. And so as the God-man, he boards the boat, calms the wind. And if you read the same miracle in John 6, you know what he does? He immediately transfers the boat to the land. In other words, there was no more rowing. There was no more time gap. Can you imagine being that passenger? Like you've been rowing five, six hours. You see what you think is a ghost and you realize, no, it's the same guy who fed 5,000. He gets in the boat and suddenly you're just like, you know, whittling wood. You're just on the shore. They're building a sandcastle. I don't know. You're just there. That's an amazing miracle. And yet I tend to think this, this, this scenario plays out out of a response of Jesus' compassion for his friends. They were naturally afraid, and he comes to their aid. Have you ever been naturally afraid of something? Now, I know most guys here in the room say, nope, not me. I'm not ever afraid of anything. Well, you can act all big and bad if you want. The truth is, everyone at some point has been or will be naturally afraid. I mean, in a, on a very serious note, if you were in the Walmart in El Paso, Texas yesterday, and you heard gunshots, you would have been afraid. What if you were one of those gentlemen coming out, and you saw a, a man just killing people? You would have been afraid. That would not have been a sin. It wouldn't have been wrong. It would have been a natural occurrence. We don't want to die. We don't want to die in that way. You have natural fear. When you have natural fear, when the things of life, circumstances, phenomena, occurrences, when they happen and we find ourselves afraid, I have good news for you. Jesus cares for you. As I meditated on this principle, for some reason, my mind went straight to many older folks in our church. And there's reasons for all of us at different ages to be afraid. I get that. But for some reason, I just begin to think about our older people. God's blessed us with a, a beautiful collection of older people. In fact, Virginia, you're 93, aren't you? Isn't that great? It's, I mean, that's, that's beautiful. 93. Faithless can be. We have the three musketeers down here. That's what I call them, by the way. And 96. Marilyn, is that right? Or Tony? And I've, the name just slips me. I'm sorry. Lucy, that's right. Thank you. I've always think I got to remember that name, and then I didn't. So 96. We've got other folks. First service, Wally and his wife are 87 back there. You know, I, I can't speak for every person who's aging, but I imagine there are certain fears that come with that, that whole process that you don't necessarily want to admit, perhaps, and they just come with what's going to happen. Maybe people wonder how I'm going to pass away or maybe how uh, I'm going to take care of myself. I think there are those who age and their mobility decreases. And then they're going to wonder, how can I uh, handle things? They've been the provider, but suddenly they can't now. And that, that probably is a whole process of feelings. And I just thought about our older folks. And I just want to say to those, Lucy and Virginia and There's other ones I haven't called your name. You know, Jesus cares for you. 96, 93. 
You know, maybe you're not in the 90s or even 80s, but maybe you've had an um, experience with aging that's very difficult, earlier than you expected. Jesus cares for you. I'm not here to solve the aging issue. I don't know if I can even address that whole subject. I just want you to know this morning that based on this, when you're naturally afraid, Jesus is compassionate. And we all have fears at various junctures in life. Jesus is, is, is compassionate. Let's finish the narrative, can we? Verse 53 says that when they had crossed over, I, I think they're, I, I just had this sense, they're, just, they're wondering, man, this come away by yourselves and rest, like when is that ever going to happen? You've got to wonder that in the text, don't you? It still is yet to occur, by the way. So now they're crossing over, they're at the land, they anchor the boat to the shore. Verse 54 says, when they got out of the boat, and I'm wondering if they're thinking, finally we're here at the desolate place. Maybe this will work. Look what happens. The people immediately recognized him. <laughs> now I'm adding to the text here, so this is not, this is just my opinion. But I wonder if the disciples weren't like, oh brother, not them again. I just, you kind of wonder, right? I love the way Mark writes these narratives to show us the beauty of Christ. So he's weaving these three together, showing that it's compassionate uh, when we're spiritually fatigued, when we're naturally afraid, and now when we're physically ill. Because the people recognized Jesus and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people. Remember, contrast that with the very first verse, verse 31. He said, come away by yourselves. They've yet to be by themselves. Christ's compassion just is, is overflowing. Now they're bringing sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, wherever he came in villages and cities or countryside, which indicates to me this is probably a multiple-day situation here being described, perhaps even weeks. Wherever he was in these villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they may touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Isn't that glorious? That Jesus comes into town with a band of frustrated, probably irritated disciples. And they just flood him with people. And what does he do? He heals many of them. Do you see how Jesus is compassionate when people are physically ill as well? Now, let's just answer the obvious question here. Was everyone healed? No. Who was healed? The Bible says, as many as touched it were made well. This is very similar to Mark 3 and Mark 5, I believe it is. When it says that in Mark 3, they touched him and they were healed. In Mark 5, the woman with the issue of blood touched his garment and he turned and said, who did that? And he met her and she knew him. So here's what I think is going on. Listen very carefully. There's a reason the writer, which is Mark, is intentionally contrasting all the folks who wanted to touch his garment and then all the folks who were kind of in the vicinity, like, who was healed? Only those who could touch him. Here's what I think is going on. It's not that there was some magic in his robe. He wasn't like this, this flying magician, you know, Ooh, if you can touch the robe, you get an automatic healing. It's not what's happening. What Christ is saying is this. You can't have like this call-in, long-distance benefit just because, uh, you know, well, he's got the magic robe. If I can just touch it, I'm good. That's not how this works. He wanted 
like face to face. He wanted to know who it was that touched him. That's why it says here, and I think the phrase as many as touched it, they were coming close to him. In other words, there was this face to face, watch this, authentic relationship. It wasn't magic, it was miraculous. It wasn't anonymous, it was authentic. And you don't come to Christ, experience compassion or healing as a fringe benefit. You come to Christ at an authentic, who are you? I believe you are who you are, regardless of what he does or doesn't do in regards to healing. And then his sovereignty, his power, heals. Yes, it can. But not everyone is healed. So I just want you to see this interesting here. There is this desire in in Christ that we see that there's compassion in general, yes, but there's a desire for like authentic relationship, genuine, uh, we'll use the word conversation, face-to-face interaction. So three areas in which we see Christ showing compassion. Can you review them with me? When people, when we, when I, when you are spiritually fatigued, when we are what? Naturally afraid. And when we are what? Physically ill. Physically sick. In every one of those categories, you can bank on this. Jesus cares for you. He is compassionate. Now, I'll connect those dots in a moment. I want to see if there's any questions first about the text or about anything in the narratives. These three we looked at kind of in a simple, kind of larger way. Any questions first? There's one question, we'll take that. Let's hope it's one we can answer. Let's give it a shot. Here we go. In verse 52, indicating the disciples didn't see the feeding of the 5,000 as a miracle, but they actually felt bitter about it. Oh, is verse 52. That's a good question. Let's look at that verse just for a moment. It says here that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's a very good question. Here's what I think is happening is they had forgotten that the man they saw on the sea was also the man they saw on the grassy hillside feeding the 5,000. They just didn't connect those dots. And the reason is because their hearts were calloused. The word hardened there is a, is, is, a, is a word that has the idea of something being calloused or kind of skinned over multiple times. And so it's hard to penetrate. Now, the question is, why were their hearts calloused or hardened? And here's a speculation I want to make with you. Could it be, and I'm not saying this is true, I'm just speculating. You can wrestle this in your own mind. Could it be that, that they were calloused to understanding who he was in that moment because they were so spiritually and physically fatigued from the earlier ministries? Remember, the guys here who were having these calloused hearts were the same guys who were sent on mission. They were the ones who went and did incredible things in the power of the Lord, came back and told the Lord everything that they had done. That's, that's, a, that's a great story, right? Ed preached on it last week. They were sent, but they found themselves spent. Now they found themselves frustrated, and so suddenly when they see the Lord, they're slow, they're callous, they're, they're not connecting. Oh, yes, we're going to be okay. If he took care of 5,000 on the hillside, he can take care of 12 in a boat. My sense is that probably their hardness there Maybe the word bitterness, I'm not sure if I'd use that word, but this idea of slowness, 
I think there's a connection to their own physical, spiritual fatigue, which is a lesson for us. It's hard to connect the dots of what God is doing when we find ourselves spiritually fatigued, naturally afraid. We tend to want to just perhaps believe the doubts, if that's a way to say that, instead of trusting Christ and his care for us. So no, I don't know if I would say that they were bitter. I think it's indicating perhaps the extent of their fatigue, uh, of their spiritual maturity. But even in the middle of that, isn't it good to know? God didn't, you know, kind of like, well, I'm done with you bunch of slow learners. Jump overboard, right? <laughs> no, he's compassionate. He takes his time with him. Even the way Mark writes this, you kind of get the sense that, man, Christ is so patient and loving with them. He knows they're missing the, the dots, and yet he's taking his time to help them. So let, let me see if I can help you connect some dots. Because we've taken three larger narratives that probably in your life, you've heard them preached individually. You've heard the feeding of the 5,000 as a standalone message. You've heard the walking in the water as a standalone message, and you've probably heard uh, the idea of, of, of him healing people is a standalone message. But I think what's happening, the authorial intent, the, the real drive of Mark's narrative is this. He's showing that there is no domain or arena in life in which Christ's compassion isn't present. Remember the areas we looked at? They were physical. Same with me. Physical, spiritual, and natural. Now, log that in your memory and jump back about three or four weeks with me to when we looked at Christ's control the lady with the issue of blood, the ruler's daughter who was sick in bed, the demoniac. Remember those stories? All in a row, there are four of them. What areas did they talk about? I'll say them for you. Spiritual, physical, and natural. And we saw that in those four narratives, Christ had ultimate control in every domain of life. All of your life will fit in one of those three categories. Spiritual, physical, or natural. And now suddenly we see three more narratives in which Mark says, oh, by the way, those same three categories, spiritual, physical, and natural, Christ is not only in control, he is full of compassion. So church, hear this. Christ not only has full control over your life, he has complete compassion about your life. What a gloriously beautiful Savior. He's not the Santa Claus checking his list twice to make sure you're measuring up. He's not the sheriff coming around to arrest you because well, you crossed the line again. He's not the mechanic or the ATM machine, you, you know, the 911 call. He's none of those things. He is this holy, just, righteous, righteous, patient, compassionate God-man who even in the middle of our, watch this phrase, dustiness he remembers that we are dust and he loves us anyway are you not glad to hear that news this morning aren't you spiritually fatigued at times yes aren't you naturally afraid at times yes and aren't you at times physically sick yes Regardless of which category you find your life in at different times, there is no domain in which you're outside of his compassion and care. God loves you. 
So here's how I would kind of sum this up in a, in a single phrase. That Christ's compassion covers every part of my life. And it builds my confidence in his sovereign care. This is what the disciples are missing in verse 52. They weren't connecting the dots. That, man, if he, if he cared for those people, 5,000 men, he fed them in our presence with a little lunch, he'll take care of us in this uh, headwind that we're trying to row against. We should remember, Christ's compassion covers every part of our life. So let's connect the dots. Let's not be calloused or slow or hardened. And let's have an increasing confidence in his sovereign care of our life. And so I say that to people here who are struggling in a number of ways. I say that to Bob, who starts radiation next week. You said to me before the service, 10 of them. Starts tomorrow, 10 of those. And this cancer you've had is just an ongoing battle for you. I don't have any answers for that. I don't have the answer to why. But I can assure you, Bob, God cares for you in the middle of your physical illness. Monty, I think about you and your diagnosis with ALS. You and Carol both. I mean, you don't hear about a lot of people with ALS, you know? When you told us that a few months ago and now the church is praying, I, I can't even imagine the battle that is. And you guys are beautiful models of grace in this, but I want you to know, as your muscles deteriorate, if that's what God's will is and he doesn't bring healing, God cares for you, Monty. He does, okay? He has great compassion for you, Carol, and as y'all are going through some very difficult days, I'm sure. I don't know if Jim Deal is in here or not. Jim and Ellen usually sit right around this area. Um, his lungs, are, there's something going on there, and they've had some diagnosis, and I'm not even sure how to do, you say the words. He, he knows it all. But there's some difficult news he's having to hear. You know, God cares for Jim and Ellen as he's struggling now to think about what does it look like going forward. I think about Scott back there, and where's Cindy? She's here, I know I saw her before the service. Cindy Johnson, are you here? There she is. And the struggles you guys have physically. Every day is a battle, I'm sure. But God cares for you too. I think about those here who struggle with mental things. God cares for you. There are couples, child, um, you know, reproduction and fertility issues are, are a problem or have been. They're just, they're just a constant, like, it's this hole in your heart you feel. God cares for you. There are couples who right now are a million miles away emotionally from each other. You feel like you're just on the edge of ending it all. God cares for you. He's, he does. So you name your dilemma. Name it. I want to say to you, God cares for you right in the middle of that dilemma. That's how great of a Savior we have. In fact, just between services, this, mind, this verse came to mind in Lamentations when it says that, that his mercies are new every morning, his faithfulness is great, his loving kindness is steadfast. I thought it was so odd that the writer would write that in a book called Lamentations. Like, you know what that word means, don't you? Like, mourning. He's writing a book 
describing the mournings he has because of the spiritual idolatry of, of Israel and their captivity, and yet he says in the middle of this terribly um, uh, like chastening time in Israel's life, he says God is so incredibly compassionate. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. And the book's called Mornings. In their worst days, the writer's extolling God for his compassion. So church, I don't come to you this morning with an answer for every situation. I don't. I can't. I'm not that good. There is no elder or pastor or deacon or member that good. There's just not. There's one God who's great though. And in the middle of your worst situation, I want to tell you this. God cares for you. Now, I hope your heart is nagging with this question right now. Well, if he is so compassionate, why doesn't he fix everything now? If he cares that much, what's the holdup? Just as in Christ's earthly life, he didn't heal every person, calm every storm, feed every hungry person, solve every situation or fix every dilemma. What Christ is aiming for is the ultimate end game of God's glory. And so currently, until we wait for his return, when he will make all things new, that will happen one day. While we wait for that, we trust that God is weaving together both good and evil for the ultimate glory of the Father. This is why this take-home encouragement is worded this way. Because as we see Christ's compassion, it builds our confidence that he will return one day, he will make things right, make all things new and restore and reconcile. It's not there yet. And so we wait with confidence in the compassion and care of our Savior. So I have to ask you this. We trust the end game and we endure the short game. And you say, Todd, can you prove that? I can. I want to prove that to you via the cross of Christ where he did everything necessary to win the end game. And if God would sacrifice his own son, if God would not even spare his own son to meet your deepest need, why would you doubt that? Why would you doubt that, God? Would you think that he doesn't care for you when he gave up his own son to meet your deepest need? Yes, he did. The forgiveness of your sins, the eternal destiny of your soul, it's hinged to God's sacrificial, compassionate love on Calvary. And when Jesus died, he was saying, with no uncertain terms, how much he cares. And if he cares enough to solve our deepest dilemma, then he cares in every one of the ones that's underneath that. That's why I say to you, we're going to wait with confidence in his sovereign care because we know he has already won the end game. And so we'll endure in the short term. We'll endure temporarily, yes, knowing that one day he'll return. He'll make all things right. He'll make all things new. When that day comes, man, we will all rejoice, amen, that we're no longer enduring broken bodies, amen. aging bodies, 
limited time, shortened energy. All of those will be done and will serve our God tirelessly, joyfully, endlessly. So we're enduring the short term. We're confident in the long term. And he's done everything necessary to win that game, so to speak. He has. Calvary declares it loudly. That's why it always comes back to the gospel. Every single time. So Christ's compassion even comes back to the gospel. There he shows his compassion in its ultimate highest form. So I want to call upon you this morning to trust Jesus in every arena of your life. Trust his compassion for you. Specifically, in three arenas. Same with me, ready? Spiritual fatigue, natural fear, and physical illness. And I assure you, you can trust him because he's met your deepest need already in Jesus on the cross. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.